them. Um, some of you may know that I did run a marathon about a month ago, and I had trained really well for it, and uh, had been out there early in the morning, done my long runs on Saturdays, done all the stuff I was supposed to do, and I had really good, strong training, better than any of the other marathon attempts years before, and um, so I was in, and I went to, we went down to Albany, Georgia, to go run this, so it was flat, I'd run Nashville before, that's not flat. And so um, I was out there. I had really high expectations. I was hoping I'd break, you know, make a new record, which I actually did, but it wasn't all that great. But in any case, so I was running along, and things were going really good. I was, I was averaging, like, way better than I thought I would the first 10 miles. I was keeping up with the pack that was going to finish in just over four hours. And I'm going, what? Man, this is, a great, this is going to be a great day. And then the second half, the second 10 miles, I was still feeling pretty good, slowed down a little bit. You know, had a little bit longer mile pace time. Things were still going good, though. And I started getting up close to mile 20, and I started feeling, you know, oh, you know, you get tired. You'd done, I'd done some long runs where I'd run, run 20 miles. I kind of knew what that felt like. And I got up to mile 20, still feeling pretty good, so second 10-mile leg. And I hit mile 21, and I saw the marker, mile 21. And it said, please stop. <laughs> and it was begging to me, please stop. And so I got to mile 21, and I decided I, if I need to walk for a moment. And so I walked for about 100 yards, and with the intention I was going to pick back up and keep on running. And I did. I forced myself to pick back up and keep on running. started getting kind of dizzy and uh, feeling a little lightheaded. And so I picked back up, ran the rest, got to the mile 22 sign. The mile 22 sign said, you must stop. <laughs> and so I said, like, okay, well, I'll stop for a little while, and I'll walk, and so I walked about 100 yards, and then I tried to run some more. And uh, I started running down the road and then felt like I was going to fall over. And so I said, well, I, must, must, I need to stop for a little bit. So I'll just walk for a little bit. And then I tried to get running again, and I, I couldn't do it. And then I, was, I remember walking past this one point, like around mile 23. I turned this corner in a neighborhood, and there was these steps from somebody's sidewalk that came all the way out to the road. And they, they formed this perfect little seated ledge alongside the road. And I remember looking at that ledge, at that little seat on the side of the road and thinking to myself, I so desperately want to come and hang out with you. <laughs> and, oh, I was, just, I was just so exhausted. And so, uh, but I was like, if I stop and do that, uh, I'll be laying here till dark, right? And so I just, just kept on plugging and uh, did finish, did have a new personal best record. But um, uh, you know, the trailer car did not bump into me on my way across the finish line, thankfully. But in any case, did finish. But I, I experienced in that experience of running a marathon, there are many moments of desperation. And that's what we want to talk about today. What does desperation create in us? What does it produce in us that brings us to a place where we're willing to begin to pray some prayers, when we're, beginning to, when we're willing to turn to the Lord and, and make some deals, right? What is it about desperation that produces in us those qualities? So that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, we're going to take a look at two scriptures as well that come to us from Mark chapter 5. We're starting a new series today called Encountering Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we'll go through the Gospel of Mark, through the Gospel of Luke, and meet some of the people that met Jesus. And so the first of those is Jairus. And so I'm going to ask, if you would, as, as our custom, to stand and read together 
from Mark chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 21 and 23. This is a story of a guy named Jairus, and his daughter was sick. And so let's read uh, Jairus in his desperation. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. You may be seated. Thanks so much. All right, so let's just kind of walk through these verses together. And as we walk through these verses, what you'll see are there's some qualities in Jairus that bubble up to the surface that enable Jesus to help him in, with this miracle. So let's take a look at verse 21. It says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. Now, I don't think I gave you guys instructions about putting a map on the screen. That's okay. You can imagine the Sea of Galilee is in the northern territory of Israel. The Jordan River runs out of the Sea of Galilee and into the Dead Sea on the bottom on the south side of Israel. Um, so it's in the northern territory, and on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee is a city called Capernaum, and the lake that this refers to here is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 16 miles long, north to south, so it's a pretty significant body of water, and it's the kind of body of water that you read about other places in the gospel where storms would wash down, would blow down to this valley, would churn up this lake, and it would be like a raging sea. And so Jesus has just, in the passage pre prior to this, healed a guy on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, hopped in a boat, and now he's sailed up to the northern tip to Capernaum, which was kind of like the home base for Jesus' public ministry. Back to verse 21. It says, So a large crowd gathered around Jesus while he was by the lake. Verse 22. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there, seeing Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet. Verse 23. And he pled, or he pleaded earnestly with him, my little girl is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So here we meet a guy named Jarius, and Jarius is pretty desperate. His little girl is sick. She's deathly sick, very serious stuff. And he comes to Jesus begging him, basically. He's falling on his knees in front of him. He's pleading with Jesus. He says, look, I've heard the accounts of what you can do. I know that you're a healer. I know that you can heal my daughter. Please come with me, right? He's grabbing him by the arm. Please come with me. Please, please, my daughter is deathly sick. But the Bible also tells us some other things, some very interesting details about this guy. It says there, verse 22, that um, Jairus is one of the synagogue rulers. Now, what is that? Well, synagogue rulers is a lay position. That is, it is a position that's occupied by non-clergy, by non-rabbi. And this was uh, the, the, a very prominent position in a Jewish community for somebody to be the synagogue ruler. That is, to be the director over what happens at the synagogue, not just over the building and the facility itself, but this is kind of like the person that would schedule who's going to have the daily prayers, who's going to give the daily readings from the Torah, who's going to give the daily uh, sermons that they would hold there at the synagogue. And so he's got a lot of prestige that would come along with this position. Typically, this position uh, was something that was given to one, a wealthy benefactor of the church and, and of the Jewish people there in that area. Um, the point is that next to the rabbi in that town, the synagogue ruler was the most prominent Jewish position in all of the community. Okay, the second thing that we know about Jairus is that his daughter was very sick. Over in Luke's account of this story, Luke reveals to us that this uh, was his only daughter. 
Um, and a little bit later here in the passage in Mark, we learn that uh, th- this little girl was 12 years old. And so very precious to him, um, to Jarius. And Jarius loved his little girl very much. And everything he's tried to do to bring about her healing has turned up empty. And so he's desperate. And she's on her deathbed. And so he comes to Jesus. He knows that Jesus is a healer. He comes to him and invites him back to his house. Do you hear the desperation in Jairus' voice? Please come and heal my daughter. Now here's something very interesting. The story story takes a twist. uh, And we meet another desperate person here in this passage. It's a lady that for the last 12 years of her life has sustained uh, some physical issues. And so she comes to Jesus, and she thinks to herself, if I can just get to where Jesus is and just touch the hem of his garment, like literally the hem of his robe, I can be healed. She spent all of her money, all of her time over the last 12 years, everything that she has, trying to get well, trying to get better. And so she pushes her way up through the crowds that are around Jesus. She elbows her way, and she finally gets down and makes a low leap for Jesus and just touches the hem of his garment, and suddenly, miraculously, this lady is healed. Jesus feels the power go out of him, and, um, and so it kind of causes quite a commotion, and Jesus stops the procession of people that are going to Jairus' house, with Jairus walking right there next to him. He inquires, who just touched me? You're like, well, we're bumping up against you. I mean, who, what do you mean? He said, no, somebody just touched me in a way that power came out of me, and they were healed. And he finds out who it was, and he blesses the lady. Look at verse 34. It says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And be freed from your suffering. Now back to Jairus, verse 35. While Jairus was, or while Jesus was still speaking to this lady, some men came from Jairus' house, the synagogue ruler, and they said, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher anymore? Friends, I imagine that Jairus, in that moment, hearing that his daughter has died, boils up with anger. He's angry at the delay. If we could have gotten Jesus to my house in time, things might have been different. He's angry at the crowd that have delayed Jesus. He's angry at the woman. He's glad for her that she got healed, but now his daughter has lost her life. Verse 36, ignoring what they said, however, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. It's as though Jesus is saying, hey, look, I told you that I was going to heal your daughter. Believe me. Believe me, my power is not limited. My power is much greater than some delay that happened here on the road. Believe me. Well, thank goodness that Jairus did believe, and he hung in there with Jesus. Verse 38, And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus sees a commotion with people trying, crying and wailing loudly, the text says. Now, this would have been typical in Jesus' day among Jewish people. It was a cultural response to grief. Uh, people would have grieved loudly. They would have grieved very publicly. And so that's what's going on there at Jairus' house, especially with the tragedy of a 12-year-old girl passing. Um, and so, you know, Jairus has a decision to make. He hears all this wailing of people from the street outside. He sees it when he walks in the house. He sees the grief on the face of everyone, all the folks that are there. And he could have said, Jesus, I am so sorry. Um, this is a fool's errand now. You... It's okay, you can just go on about your way. And he could have just dismissed Jesus out of the home. But Jairus didn't stop Jesus from walking into the house. He didn't dismiss him. He did what Jesus asked. He believed. 
Verse 39, Jesus went in and said to him, why all this commotion and this wailing? Why all this grief that I see on your faces and in action? The child's not dead. She's just asleep. Verse 40, but they laughed at him. Somebody had been upstairs. They had taken the girl's pulse. They know what had happened. Jesus says she's asleep. Now, again, Jerry's could have put a stop to this at this moment. He could have said, you know, I'm an important man in the community. This is getting embarrassing. Me going forward with Jesus, continuing on this line. But he didn't. He continued to believe. Verse 40. After Jesus put all the people out, he took, he too, or took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. Verse 41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the little girl stood up and she walked around the room. So she went from being a corpse to color back in her skin, smile on her face, 100% well again. Not slightly recovering from a bout of death, but 100% ready to go again. And it says that they were all completely astonished. Well, I suppose so, right? Okay, that's as far as we want to go with our text for today, with the story for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask the question that we ask every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, that's really great for Jarius. I mean, I appreciate that. And for that lady that was healed, good for them. But I mean, what difference does any of this make to me, right? Well, let's talk about that. First, I have a question for you. Did it seem strange to you that Jarius um, came to Jesus the way he did? Did it seem strange to you that Jairus, being the synagogue ruler, came to Jesus? You say, well, no, not really. I mean, he was desperate, right? He came to Jesus, he knew Jesus could heal, and so he came to Jesus. Um, so, not really. Well, it actually should seem strange to you, and here's why. It's because the synagogue ruler in Jesus' day was part of the religious establishment. I mean, Jairus was part of the religious establishment of his day. He was part of the religious ruling class in that position, especially at Capernaum. Capernaum was a city that sat at the crossroads of Interstate 75 and Interstate 20. You follow what I'm saying? And so a lot of, a lot of goods and services came from Mesopotamia down to the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, would get on a boat, would, would, would uh, send that boat down to the south, southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, back on a caravan, and then down into Egypt, and goods were coming and going north and south right through Capernaum. And so that made Capernaum a very wealthy town. It made Capernaum a very connected town. It made Capernaum a very political town. And Jairus didn't rise to the position of being the synagogue ruler, the most prominent Jewish person in the community, by being a political buffoon. He knew what interacting with Jesus meant to his role in the synagogue. Um, In fact, over in John chapter 9, we learn what the religious establishment felt about Jesus. John chapter 9 tells the story of a man who was born blind since birth. Uh, Pretty nice thing for Jesus to do, to heal this guy. And um, you think everybody would be happy about Jesus having healed a man who had been blind since birth. Well, at John chapter 9, we learn that the religious ruling class were not so excited about this. In fact, they bring this man who had been born blind, who now can see, they brought his drug his parents in, into the synagogue, and began to question, to pepper his parents. And his parents said, uh, yes, indeed, our son was born blind. He's been blind his whole life. But, and he can see now. We were not disputing that. But how that happened, we don't know. 
We don't have any idea. Why don't you ask him? He's of age, they say. And then we learn why they said this. The scripture reveals something really interesting. John chapter 9 and verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already, don't miss this, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And this is why, verse 23, his parents said, Our son's of age. Ask him. In other words, Senator, I can neither confirm nor deny. Right? And so that's what they're doing. They're dodging the question. His parents are dodging the question because they know the repercussions of associating themselves with Jesus. And look here, folks. Jairus did not, again, work his way up into becoming the most prominent Jewish person in the city of, 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 city of importance of Capernaum by being a political lightweight. You know what I'm saying? He knew up from down in the political world. He knew that association with Jesus was grounds for dismissal. I mean, he knew that consulting with Jesus, petitioning Jesus, having Jesus to his house was going to mean that he was going to lose his role in the community. There was no hiding what he was doing. He went to Jesus in the middle of the day, in the middle of the road, while there were crowds of people gathered around Jesus and gave him the invitation to his own home. So this is not something that he did in the middle of the night. Hey, Jesus, why don't you slip in the back door? He did this in the middle of day. And the reason why he did this, the reason why he did this, and there's only one reason he did this, is because he was desperate. He was desperate. You know when you're desperate, you go places. You do things. You make decisions that in, under other circumstances may seem irrational, perhaps. But when you're desperate... You're willing to do those things. And I want you to know something else. That God doesn't turn desperate people away. God doesn't say, you know what, you're under the influence right now. <laughs> you're not yourself. Why don't you come back when you've got a little bit more perspective, when you're not perhaps so emotional, when you're not so desperate? Mm -mm. It's not what he did. God said, hey, look, I hear your desperation. And I want to reciprocate. Now, what is it then about desperation, about pe people being in the situation that Jairus is, about people being in the situation that, um, that this lady was in, that allows God to say, you know what, I'll work with you when you're feeling desperate. What is it? There's some spiritual qualities that bubble up to the surface in us that enables God, that causes God, that ignites God to want to reach out and help us in those hours of desperation. And so I got two spiritual qualities that I want to share with you. Two spiritual qualities that put God, make, or, or send God into action, okay? First spiritual quality is humility, humility. I want what 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, when we're desperate, when we come to the realization that we are not as smart as we think we are. That's a place of humility. When we're desperate, we are reminded that we are not as capable and as self-reliant as we think we are. When we are desperate, we become acutely aware of just how much we need God's help. And friends, it's this spiritual quality of humility that gets God's attention. God opposes who? The proud but gives grace 
to the humble. It's that spiritual quality of humility that sends God into action. Friends, the more we call for God's help, the more God's willing to give it. The second spiritual quality that we see in desperate people is absolute surrender. Absolute surrender. You say, Gordon, I mean, surrender to what? What are we talking about here? Well, surrender to putting Jesus first in every nook and cranny of our life. Surrender to ejecting the immoral conduct in our lives. A life that is surrendered to God. God says, you know what? Or we say, we're saying to God, when we're surrendered, we're saying, God, you know what? God, I'll do life on your terms. I'm surrendered to you and to your will in my life. Uh, a life that's absolutely surrendered says, God, whatever plans you have for my life, I'm good with it. Absolute surrender means not just tolerating God's plans for our life, but embracing God's plans for our life. That is absolute surrender, and that is fleshed out, is realized in times of desperation. Let's be honest. Most of us are only willing to trust God 100% when we're out of answers. Most of us are only willing to trust God 100% when we've come to the end of our own resources, when there's no other option, when we're like Jarius, when we're like this lady who, with 12 years, had this condition. When we're desperate, that's when we are humbled, and that's when we are ready to surrender. It's like the old saying goes, a pig never looks up until it's flat on its back. I thought that was pretty good. Some of y'all are looking at me like, huh? A pig never looks up. Anyway, here's a little bit nicer way of saying that. You know, I never realized that Jesus is all I need until Jesus is all I've got. Friends, we learned several months back in our series on brokenness that sometimes the tough stuff that we go through is for a reason. That sometimes God is responsible for the suffering that we go through. And all of that is to produce in us some radical spiritual qualities so that on the other side of our desperation, we're a different person. We are more committed we are more surrendered. We are more humble. And friends, the only way that sometimes that stuff gets birthed in us is because we go through times of desperation. Maybe you're here this morning and you would say, you know what? I can identify with how Jarius was feeling. I can identify with how that lady was feeling. For 12 long years, she suffered. And as David said in Psalm chapter 119 and verse 71, as a result of all of that, it was good for me, a good thing, a good thing for me to be afflicted because of what was produced in David, because of what was produced in Jarius, because of what was produced in this lady, because of what's produced in us in times of desperation. Uh, maybe it's a situation at work that's got you feeling desperate. Maybe it's something going on with your children or something with your family. Maybe it's a health scare of recent days and weeks. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's something in a relationship that you cannot fix and cannot solve. And when we're in a situation like that, we start asking God, God, why would you let me be in a situation like this? Friends, sometimes God lets us be in the situation that we're in because God's trying to transform us. He's trying to birth these qualities, these radical spiritual qualities of humility and absolute surrender in us. And I don't want to tag on to God all of our negative circumstances in our life, all the struggles that we go through in our life, sometimes it's just a result of living in a fallen world. I mean, sometimes that's the reason why the things are going on in our life that are negative. But in whichever the case, 
God uses those times of desperation to transform us into a different person so that we can say with the perspective of David, it was a good thing for me to be afflicted. I'm going to invite Jason and Keith to come on up. They're going to share a special song with us today, a little bit different for us way to close out our sermon. Um, And this is a song about desperation. It's a song of a story of someone who's going through a time when they need God to step in and intervene. See if you can relate to the story that's shared in the words of this song. Well, late one night she started to cry and thought, I ain't coming home. She was tired of the lies and tired of the fight, but she didn't want to see him go. She fell on her knees and said, I haven't prayed since I was young. But Lord above, I need a miracle. Well, no matter who you are, And no matter what you've done, there will come a time when you can make it on your own. And in your hour of desperation, know you're not the only one. Praying, Lord above, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. He lost his job and all he had in the fall of 09. Now he feared the worst that he wouldn't lose his children and his wife. So he drove down deep into the woods and thought he'd end it all. And prayed, Lord above, I need a miracle. Well, no matter who you are, And no matter what you've done, there will come a time when you can make it on your own. And in your hour of desperation, know you're not the only one. Praying, Lord above, I need a miracle. I need a miracle. He turned on the radio to hear a song for the last time. He didn't know what he was looking for or even what he'd find. And the song he heard, it gave him hope and strength to carry on. And on that night, they found a miracle. They found a miracle. da 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 
the only one Praying, Lord, above, I need a miracle Lord, above, I need a miracle Let's pray together Most gracious Lord, we thank you for uh, this time to come here to your house We thank you, Lord, that you do not ignore us in times of desperation. Uh, but yet, Lord, you're ready to deal with us many times because of those spiritual qualities of humility and surrender to you and to your will that bubble up to the surface in those times of desperation. So, God, uh, we gather around this table today to recognize, Lord, that uh, you yourself went through untold trials and untold struggles. And we are so thankful, Lord, for that. And that, God, we have hope in Jesus' name. As we bow our heads, as we receive this meal today, God, we ask that you would meet us in our feelings of desperation. And, Lord, that we would just be encouraged to continue to believe in you, to continue to follow you. Lord, we give you these moments and ask that your Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.